Page 14 Such unscientific balderdash, added the doctor, flushing suddenly purple. Would have been strange diamond and Pythias. This little spirit of temper was somewhat of a relief to Mr. Utterson. They've only differed on some point of science, he thought, and being a man of no scientific passions, except in the matter of conveyancing, he even added, It is nothing worse than that. He gave his friend a few seconds to recover his composure, and then approached the question he had come to put. Did you ever come across a protege of his? One Hyde? he asked. Hyde? repeated Lanyon. No, never heard of him, since my time. That was the amount of information that the lawyer carried back with him to the great dark bed, on which he tossed to and fro until the small hours of the morning began to grow large. It was a night of little ease to his toiling mind, toiling in mere darkness and besieged by questions. Six o'clock struck on the bells of the church, that was so conveniently near to Mr. Utterson's dwelling, and still he was digging at the problem. Hitherto it had touched him on the intellectual side alone, but now his imagination was also engaged, or rather enslaved, and as he lay and tossed in the gross darkness of the night and the curtained room, Mr. Enfield's tale went by, before his mind in a scroll of lighted pictures he would be aware of the great field of lamps of the nocturnal city, and then the figure of a man walking swiftly, then of a child running from the doctors, and then these met, and that human juggernaut trod the child down and passed unregardless of her screams, or else he would see a room in a rich house where his friend lay asleep, dreaming and smiling at his dreams, and then the door of that room would be opened, the curtains of the bed plucked apart. The sleeper recalled, and lo, there would stand by his side a figure to whom power was given, and even at that dead hour he must rise and do its bidding. Page 15. The figure in these two phases haunted the lawyer all night, and if at any time he dozed over, it was but to see it glide more stealthily through sleeping houses, or move the more swiftly and still the more swiftly, even to dizziness, through wider labyrinths of lamp-lighted city, and at every street corner crush a child and leave her screaming and still the figure had no face by which he might know it. Even in his dreams, it had no face, or no one that baffled him and melted before his eyes. And thus it was that there sprang up and grew apace in the lawyer's mind a singularly strong, almost an inordinate curiosity to behold the features of the real Mr. Hyde. If he could but once set eyes on him, he thought the mystery would lighten and perhaps roll altogether away, as was the habit of mysterious things when well examined. He might see a reason for his friend's strange preference or bondage, call it what you please, and even for the startling clause of the will. 
And at least it would be a face worth seeing, the face of a man who was without bowels of mercy, a face which had but to show itself to raise up in the mind of the unimpressionable Enfield, a spirit of enduring hatred. From that time forward, Mr. Utterson began to haunt the doors in the by-streets of shops, in the morning, before office hours, at noon, when business was plenty and time scarce, at night, under the face of the fogged city moon, by all lights and at all hours of solitude or concourse, the lawyer was to be found on his chosen post. If he be missed to hide, he had thought, I'll be missed to seek. And at last his patience was rewarded. It was a fine dry night, frost in the air, the streets as clean as a ballroom floor, the lamps unshaken by any wind, drawing a regular pattern of light and shadow. Page 16. By ten o'clock, when the shops were closed, the by street was very solitary and, in spite of the low growl of London from all round, very silent. Small sounds carried far. Domestic sounds out of the houses were clearly audible on either side of the roadway, and the rumor of the approach of any passenger preceding him by a long time. Mr. Utterson had been some minutes at his post when he was aware of an odd, light footstep drawing near. In the course of his nightly patrols, he had long grown accustomed to the quaint effect with which the footfalls of a single person, while he is still a great way off, suddenly sprang out distant from the vast hum and clatter of the city, yet his attention had never before been so sharply and decisively arrested, and it was with a strong, superstitious provision of success that he withdrew into the entry of the court. The steps drew swiftly nearer and swelled out suddenly louder as they turned the end of the street. The lawyer, looking forth from the entry, could soon see what manner of man he had to deal with. He was a small and very plainly dressed. The look of him, even at the distance, went somehow strongly against the watcher's inclination. But he made straight for the door, crossing the roadway to save time. And, as he came, he drew a key from his pocket, like one approaching home. Mr. Utterson stepped out and touched him on the shoulder as he passed. Mr. Hyde, I think. Mr. Hyde shrank back with a hissing intake of breath, but his fear was only momentary. And though he did not look the lawyer in the face, he answered coolly enough. That's my name. What do you want? I see you are going in, returned the lawyer. I'm an old friend of Dr. Jekyll's, Mr. Utterson of Gaunt Street. You might have heard the name. Meeting you so conveniently, I thought you might admit me. Page 17. You will not find Dr. Jekyll. He is from home, replied Mr. Hyde, blowing in the key. 
and then suddenly, but still without looking up. How did you know me? he asked. On your side, said Mr. Utterson. Will you do me a favor? With pleasure, replied the other. What shall it be? Will you let me see your face? asked the lawyer. Mr. Hyde appeared to hesitate, and then, as if upon some sudden reflection, fronted about with an air of defiance, and the pair stared at each other pretty fixedly for a few seconds. Now I shall know you again, said Mr. Utterson. It may be useful. Yes, returned Mr. Hyde. It is as well we have met, and apropos, you should have my address. And he gave a number of a street in Soho. Good God, thought Mr. Utterson. Can he, too, have been thinking of the will? But he kept his feelings to himself and only grunted in acknowledgement of the address. And now, said the other, how did you know me? By description, was the reply. Whose description? We have common friends, said Mr. Utterson. Common friends, echoed Mr. Hyde a little hoarsely. Who are they? Jekyll, for instance, said the lawyer. He never told you, cried Mr. Hyde with a flush of anger. I did not think you would have lied. Come, said Mr. Utterson. That is not fitting language. The other snarled aloud into a savage laugh. And the next moment, with extraordinary quickness, he had unlocked the door and disappeared into the house. The lawyer stood a while when Mr. Hyde had left him. The picture of disquietude. Page 18. Then he began slowly to mount the street, pausing every step or two and putting his hand to his brow like a man in mental perplexity. The problem he was thus debating as he walked was one of a class that is rarely solved. Mr. Hyde was pale and dwarfish. He gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a displeasing smile. He had borne himself to the lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness, and he spoke with a husky whispering and somewhat broken voice. All these points against him, but not all these together could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing and fear with which Mr. Utterson regarded him. There must be something else, said the perplexed gentleman. There is something more. If I could find a name for it, God bless me, the man hardly seems human. Something troglytic, shall we say? Or can it be the old story of Dr. Fell? Or it is the mere radiance of a foul soul that thus transpires through and transfigures its clay continent. The last, I think, for my, for oh, my poor old Harry Jekyll. If ever I read Satan's signature upon a face, it is on that of your new friend. Round the corner from the by-street, there was a square of ancient, handsome houses, 
now for the most part decayed from their high estate and let in flats and chambers to all sorts and conditions of men. Map engravers, architects, shady lawyers, and the agents, agents, agents of obscure enterprises. One house, however, second from the corner, was still occupied entire. And at the door of this, which wore a great air of wealth and comfort, though it was now plunged in darkness except for the fanlight, Mr. Utterson stopped and knocked. A well-dressed elderly servant opened the door. Is Dr. Jekyll at home, Poole? asked the lawyer. I will see, Mr. Utterson, said Poole, admitting the visitor, as he spoke into a large, low-roofed, comfortable hall paved with flags, warmed, after the fashion of a country house, by a bright, open fire and furnished with costly cabinets of oak. Page 19. We wait here by the fire, sir, or shall I give you a light in the dining room? Here, thank you, said the lawyer, and he drew near and leaned on the tall fender. This hall, in which he was now left alone, was a pet fancy of his friend, the doctor's, and Utterson himself was wont to speak of it as the pleasantest room in London. But... Tonight, there was a shudder in his blood. The face of Hyde sat heavy on his memory. He felt, what was rare with him, a nausea and distaste of life. And in the gloom of his spirits, he seemed to read a menace in the flickering of the firelight on the polished cabinets and the uneasy starting of the shadow on the roof. He was ashamed of his relief when Poole presently returned to announce that Dr. Jekyll was gone out. I saw Mr. Hyde go in by the old dissecting room pool, he said. Is that right, when Dr. Jekyll is from home? Quite right, Miss Dodderson, sir, replied the servant. Mr. Hyde has a key. The master seems to repose a great deal of trust in that young man, Poole, resumed the other musingly. Yes, sir, he does, indeed said Poole. We have all orders to obey him. I don't think I ever met Mr. Hyde, asked Utterson. Oh, dear no, sir. He never dines here, replied the butler. Indeed, we see very little of him on the side of the house. He mostly comes and goes by the laboratory. Well, good night, Poole. Good night, Miss Dodderson. And the lawyer set out homeward with a very heavy heart. Poor Harry Jekyll, he thought. My mind misgives me. He is in deep waters. He was wild when he was young. A long while ago, to be sure. But in the law of God, there is no statute of limitations. Page 20. Ah, it must be that. The ghost of some old sin, the cancer of some concealed disgrace. Punishment coming, Pere Claudio, 
years after memory has forgotten, and self-love condoned the fault. And the lawyer, scared by the thought, brooded a while on his own past, groping in all the corners of memory, least by chance some jack-in-the-box of an old iniquity should leap to light there. His past was fairly blameless. Few men could read the rules of their life with less apprehension. Yet he was humbled to the dust by the many ill things he had done, and raised up again into a sober and fearful gratitude by many he had come so near to doing, yet avoided. And then, by a return on his former subject, he conceived a spark of hope. This master hide, if he was studied, thought he, must have secrets of his own. Black secrets, by the look of him. Secrets compared to which poor Jekyll's worst would be like sunshine. Things cannot continue as they are. It turns me cold to think this creature stealing like a thief to Harry's bedside. Poor Harry, what awakening! And the danger of it! For if this Hyde suspects the existence of the will, he may grow impatient to inherit. Ah! I must put my shoulder to the wheel, if Jekyll will but let me, he added. If Jekyll will only let me. For once more he saw before his mind's eye, as clear as transparency, the strange clauses of the will. Chapter 3, page 21. Dr. Jekyll was quite at ease. A fortnight later, by excellent good fortune, the doctor gave one of his pleasant dinners to some five or six old croonies, all intelligent, reputable men, and all judges of good wine. And Mr. Utterson so contrived that he remained behind after the others had departed. This was no new arrangement but a thing that had befallen many scores of time, times. Where Utterson was liked, he was liked well. Host loved to detain the dry lawyer when the light-hearted and loose-tongued had already their foot on the threshold. They liked to sit a while in his unobtrusive company, practicing for solitude, sobering their minds in the man's rich silence after the expense and strain of gaiety. To this rule, Dr. Jekyll was no exception, and as he now sat on the opposite side of the fire, a large, well-made, smooth-faced man of fifty, with something of a stylish cast, perhaps, but every mark of capacity and kindness, you could see by his looks that he cherished for Mr. Utterson a sincere and warm affection. I have been wanting to speak to you, Jekyll, began the latter. You know that will of yours? A close observer might have gathered that the topic was distasteful, but the doctor carried it off gaily. My poor Utterson, said he, you are unfortunate, in such a client, I never saw a man so distressed as you were by my will, unless it were that hide-bound pendant, Lanyon. 
had what he called my scientific asses. Ah, oh, I know. He's a good fellow. You needn't frown. An excellent fellow. And I always mean to see more of him. But a hidebound pendant for all that. An ignorant, blatant pendant. I was never more disappointed in any man than Lanyon. You know, I never approved of it, pursued Utterson, ruthlessly disregarding the fresh topic. Page 22 and 23. My will? Yes, certainly, I know that, said the doctor, a trifle sharply. You have told me so. Well, I tell you so again, continued the lawyer. I have been learning something of young Hyde. The large, handsome face of Dr. Jekyll grew pale to the very lips and there came a blackness about his eyes. I do not care to hear more, said he. This is a matter I thought we had agreed to drop. What I heard was abominable, said Utterson. It can make no change. You do not understand my position, returned the doctor with a certain incoherency of manner. I am painfully situated, Utterson. My position is a very strange, a very strange one. It is one of those affairs that cannot be mended by talking. Jekyll, said Utterson, you know me. I am a man to be trusted. Make a clean breast of this in confidence, and I make no doubt I can get you out of it. My good Utterson, said the doctor. This is very good of you. This is downright good of you, and I cannot find words to thank you in. I believe you fully. I would trust you before any man alive, <laughs> before myself, if I could make a choice. But indeed, it isn't what you fancy. It is not as bad as that. And just to put your good heart at rest, I will tell you one thing. The moment I choose, I can be rid of Mr. Hyde. I give you my hand upon that. And I thank you again and again. And I will just add one little word, Hodderson, that I'm sure you'll take and go part. This is a private matter. And I beg you to let it sleep. Utterson reflected a little looking in the fire. I have no doubt... You are perfectly right, he said at last, getting to his feet. Well, but since we have touched upon this business, and for the last time, I hope, continued the doctor, there is one point I should like you to understand. I have really a very great interest. interest. <laughs> I have a very great interest in poor Hyde. I know you have seen him told me so, and I fear he was rude, but I do sincerely take a great 
a very great interest in that young man. And if I taken away, Addison, I wish you, I wish you to promise me that you will bear with him and get him as rights for him. I think you would, if you knew all. And it would be a weight of my mind if you would promise. I can't pretend that I shall ever like him, said the lawyer. I don't ask that, pleaded Jekyll, laying his hand upon the other's arm. I only ask for justice. I only ask you to help him for my sake. But I am no longer here. Utterson heaved an irrepressible sigh. Well, said he, I promise. Page 24, Chapter 4, The Carew Murder Case Nearly a year later, in the month of October, London was startled by a crime of singular ferocity and rendered all the more notable by the opposition of the victim. The details were few and startling. A maid servant living alone in a house not far from the river had gone upstairs to bed about eleven. Although a fog rolled over the city in the small hours, the early part of the night was cloudless, and the lane, which the maid's window overlooked, was brilliantly lit by the full moon. It seemed she was romantically given, for she sat down upon her box, which stood immediately under the window, and fell into a dream of musing. Never, she used to say with streaming tears, when she narrated that experience. Never had she felt more at peace with all men, or thought more kindly of the world. And as she so sat, she became aware of an aged and beautiful gentleman with white hair, drawing near along the lane and advancing to meet him, another and very small gentleman, to whom at first she paid less attention. When they had come within speech, which was just under the maid's eyes, the older man bowed and accosted the other with a very pretty manner of politeness. It did not seem as if the subject of his address were of great importance. Indeed, from his pointing, it sometimes appeared as if he were only inquiring his way. But the moon shone on his face as he spoke and the girl was pleased to watch it. It seemed to breathe such an innocent and old-world kindness of disposition, yet with something high, too, as if a well-founded self-content. Presently her eye wandered to the other, and she was surprised to recognize in him a certain Mr. Hyde, who had once visited her master, for whom she had conceived a dislike. He had in his hand a heavy cane with which he was trifling. But he answered never a word, 
and seemed to listen with an ill-contained impatience. Page 25 And then all of a sudden he broke out in a great flame of anger, stamping with his foot, brandishing the cane, and carrying on, as the maid described, like a madman. The old gentleman took a step back, with the air of one very much surprised and trifle hurt. And at that, Mr. Hyde broke out of all bounds and clubbed him to the earth. And next moment, with ape-like fury, he was trampling his victim underfoot, inhaling down a storm of blows, under which the bones were audibly shattered and the body jumped upon the roadway. At the horror of these sights and sounds, the maid fainted. It was two o'clock when she came to herself and called for the police. The murderer was gone long ago, but there lay his victim in the middle of the lane, incredibly mangled. The stick with which the deed had been done, although it was of some rare and very tough and heavy wood, had broken in the middle under the stress of this insensate cruelty, and one splintered half had rolled in the neighboring gutter. The other, without doubt, had been carried away by the murderer. A purse and gold watch were found among the victim, but no cards or papers except a sealed and stamped envelope, which he had been probably carrying to the post and which bore the name and address of Mr. Utterson. This was brought to the lawyer the next morning before he was out of bed and he had no sooner seen it and been told the circumstances. Then he shot out a solemn lip. I shall say nothing until I have seen the body, said he. This may be very serious. Have the kindness to wait while I dress. And the same grave countenance, he hurried through his breakfast and drove to the police station, whither the body had been carried as soon as he came into the cell, he nodded. Yes, said he, I recognize him. I am sorry to say that this is Sir Danvers' curfew. Curfew? <laughs> I've read that whole thing, and I'm not going to read it again. No, I shall go rogue. Danvers' curfew. Carew. Oh my goodness. Readers, you're just going to have to deal with my whimsical nature. <laughs> I'm going to read that line again. Yes, said he. I recognize him. I'm sorry to say that this is Sir Danvers. Carew. <laughs> Happy Halloween! Page 26. Good God, sir, exclaimed the officer. Is it possible? In the next moment, his eye lighted up with professional ambition. This will make a great deal of noise. 
he said. And perhaps you can help us to the man. And he briefly narrated what the maid had seen and showed the broken stick. Mr. Utterson had already quailed at the name of Hyde, but when the stick was laid before him, he could doubt no longer, broken and battered as it was. He recognized it for the one that he had himself presented many years before to Henry Jekyll. Is this Mr. Hyde a person of small stature? He inquired. Particularly small and particularly wicked-looking is what the maid calls him, said the officer. Mr. Utterson reflected and then, raising his head, If you will come with me in my cab, he said, I think I can take you to his house. It was by this time about nine in the morning, in the first fog of the season. A great chocolate-colored pall lowered over the heaven, but the wind was continually charging and routing these embattled vapors, so that as the cab crawled from street to street, Mr. Utterson beheld a marvelous number of degrees and hues of twilight, for here it would be dark, like the back end of evening, and there would be a glow of a rich, lurid brown, like the light of some strange conflagration, and here, for a moment, the fog would be quite broken up, and a haggard shaft of daylight would glance in between the swirling wreaths. The dismal quarter of Soho seen under these changing glimpses, with its muddy ways and slatternly passengers, and its lamps, which had never been extinguished or had been kindled afresh to combat this mournful reinvasion of darkness, seemed, in the lawyer's eyes, like a district of some city in a nightmare. The thoughts of his mind, besides, were of the gloomiest eye. When he glanced at the companion of his drive, he was conscious of some touch of that terror of the law that the law officers, which may at times assail the most honest. Welcome back, everybody. Happy Halloween. Are you going to have some fun tonight? Dress up a little bit, hand some candy out. Anyway, I'm excited. I just wanted to bring your attention to a couple words on this page, page 26. A couple words that I had no idea what they were, and I just wanted to throw those out there and maybe you could re-listen to it just so you can get maybe a little bit better sense of what's going on. These are words that typically are not used during this time frame. Um, doesn't mean we can't bring them back. Anyway, a word, conflagration. Does anyone know what conflagration means? I had no idea. This is what it means. Oh, here's the pronunciation. Conflagration. 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 Okay, shut up. All right, <laughs> it's a noun. Okay. An extensive fire that destroys a great deal of land or property. So here's the sentence. Let me back up a little bit here. Mr. Utterson beheld a marvelous number of degrees and hues of twilight, for here it would be dark like the back end of evening and there would be a glow of a rich, lurid brown, like the light of some strange conflagration. And here, for a moment, the fog would be quite broken up, blah, 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 blah. 
So strange conflagration and extensive fire that destroys. So think of what the sky looks like when you have a fire, just this smoky, strange puffs of smoke in the air, maybe a dark gray, perhaps brown, um, but it's kind of broken up, you know? So that's what the author was getting at. Another word that I did not know the meaning of is slatternly. So let's look that up right now. Sorry for the delay, folks, but I know you're going to thoroughly enjoy this because you're going to learn something. Slatternly. Slatternly. Okay. Slatternly. Dirty and untidy. Synonyms. Messy, scruffy, unkept, disheveled, bedraggled. Let me read the sentence. The dismal quarter of Soho seen under these changing glimpses with its muddy ways and slatternly passengers and its lamps. Blah, 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 blah. So I thought that was really an interesting word to use. It's an adjective to describe the passengers. They're very unkept, dirty people. Yeah, very interesting. I hope you learned something. Another word that I didn't know, and I still don't know, I haven't even looked it up yet. This is kind of an off-to, off-the-cuff, offshoot, I should say. Lurid. Lurid brown. What is a lurid brown? Hmm. Lurid. 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 (laughs) Very vivid in color, especially so as to create an unpleasantly harsh or unnatural effect. Hmm. Over-dramatized, colorful, sensational, lurid brown. How can a brown be lurid? That's what I want to (laughs) know. It could be unpleasantly harsh, I guess. But I just can't picture a brown being very vivid. I just can't. But that's what the author said. Let me tell you what it was in the sentence. For here it would be a dark would be dark like the back end of evening, and there would be a glow of a rich, lurid brown, like the light of some strange conflagration. Very interesting words. I hope you learned something. Moving along to page 27. Page 27. As the cab drew up before the address indicated... The fog lifted a little and showed him a dingy street, a gin palace, a low French eating house, a shop for a retail of penny numbers and two penny salads. Many ragged children huddled in the doorways and many women of many different nationalities passing out, key in hand to have a morning glass. And the next moment the fog settled down again upon that part, as brown as umber and cut him off from his blackguardly surroundings. This was the home of Henry Jekyll's favorite, of a man who was heir to a quarter of a million sterling. An ivory-faced and silvery-haired old woman opened the door. She had an evil face, smoothed by hypocrisy, but her manners were excellent. Yes, she said, this was Mr. Hyde's. But he was not at home. He had been in that night very late, 
but he had gone away again in less than an hour. There was nothing strange in that. His habits were very irregular, and he was often absent. For instance, it was nearly two months since she had seen him till yesterday. Very well, then. We wish to see his rooms, said the lawyer. And when the woman began to declare it was impossible, I had better tell you who this person is, he added. This is Inspector Newcomen of Scotland Yard. A flash of odious joy appeared upon the woman's face. I, she said. He's in trouble. What has he done? Mr. Utterson and the inspector exchanged glances. He don't seem a very popular character, observed the latter. And now, my good woman, just let me and this gentleman have a look about us. In the whole extent of the house, which but for the old woman remained otherwise empty, Mr. Hyde had only used a couple of rooms, but these were furnished with luxury and good taste. Page 28. A closet was filled with wine. The plate was of silver. The napery elegant. A good picture hung upon the walls. A gift, as Utterson supposed, from Henry Jekyll, who was much of a connoisseur. And the carpets were of many plies and agreeable in color. At this moment, however, the rooms bore every mark of having been recently and hurriedly ransacked. Clothes lay about the floor, with their pockets inside out. Lockfast drawers stood open, and on the hearth there lay a pile of gray ashes, as though many papers had been burned. From these embers the inspector disinterred the butt-end of a green checkbook, which had resisted the action of the fire. The other half of the stick was found behind the door, and, as this clinched his suspicions, the officer declared himself delighted. A visit to the bank, where several thousand pounds were found to be lying to the murderer's credit, completed his gratification. You may depend on it, sir, he told Mr. Utterson. I have him in my hand. He must have lost his head, or he never would have left the stick or, above all, burned the checkbook. Why, money's life to a man. We have nothing to do but wait for him at the bank and get out the handbills. This last, however, was not so easy of accomplishment, for Mr. Hyde had numbered few familiars. Even the master of the servant-maid had only seen him twice. His family could nowhere be traced. He had never been photographed, and the few who could describe him differed widely, as common observers will. Only on one point were they agreed, and that was the haunting sense of unexpressed deformity with which the fugitive impressed his beholders. Page 
Page 29. Chapter 5. Incident of the Letter. It was late in the afternoon when Mr. Utterson found his way to Dr. Jekyll's door, where he was at once admitted by Poole, and carried down by the kitchen offices and across a yard, which once had been a garden, to the building which was indifferently known as the laboratory, or dissecting rooms. The doctor had bought the house from the heirs of a celebrated surgeon, and his own tastes, being rather chemical and anatomical, had changed the destination of the block at the bottom of the garden. It was the first time that the lawyer had been received in that part of his friend's quarters, and he eyed the dingy windowless structure with curiosity and gazed round with a distasteful sense of strangeness as he crossed the theater, once crowded with eager students and now lying gaunt and silent, the tables laden with chemical apparatus, the floors strewn with crates and littered with packing straw, and the light falling dimly through the foggy cupola. At the further end, a flight of stairs mounted to a door covered with red bays, and through this Mr. Utterson was at last received into the doctor's cabinet. It was a large room, fitted round with glass presses, furnished, among other things, with a chevelle glass and a business table, and looking out upon the court by three dusty windows barred with iron. The fire burned in the grate. A lamp was set lighted on the chimney shelf, for even in the houses the fog began to lie thickly, and there, close up to the warmth, Dr. Jekyll, looking dead sick. He did not rise to meet his visitor, but held out a cold hand and bade him welcome in a changed voice. And now, said Mr. Utterson, as soon as Poole had left them, you have heard the news? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have to say this. I have to tell you three words that I had no idea what they were. I have to tell you the definitions because how can you listen to this and you hear these words and you're like, what the heck is that? You can't picture it. Nothing. So if you want to know what they are, stay and listen. If you want to just move to the next page, say you already know what they are. You had all the imagery in your mind. Well, wonderful. Carry on. All right, here we go. Let's find it. Cupola. What the heck's a cupola? I had even look up how to even pronounce this thing. At first I was like, cupola? You know, whatever. Cupola. Oh, God, it's cupola. God damn it. <laughs> okay, I really just have the cupola. I thought it was cupola. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to reread that. Or I could just let it roll. Maybe I'll do that. Oh, my God. See, I hate mistakes. I am a person that just does not like mistakes. I don't like to do it wrong. What is it again? Cupola. Ah, oh, Jesus. Okay. It's a small dome, especially a small dome on a drum on top of a larger dome adorning a roof or ceiling. And it's used to have light filter in. And it's also used to provide a lookout. Okay, so it lets light and air in. They're actually quite attractive. If you look up the structures online and you look up, what is it again? Cupola. Cupola. If you look up cupola, they're quite attractive. Anyway. Oh, I don't want to read that thing again. Okay. 
I'll have to read it again because that's just the way I am. Bays. Bays. Okay, here we go. <laughs> At the further end, a flight of stairs mounted to a door covered with red bays. And through this, Mr. Utterson was at last received into the doctor's cabinet. Bays. Do you know bays is? Bays. <laughs> a course felt like wooden material that is typically green used to covered billiard and card tables or for aprons. So the fabric that covered the flight stairs were a woolen material, very coarse material. But in this case, instead of being green, it was red. So they had to say red to specify that because if you would have just said covered with bays, you would have known it was green, right? Well, anyway. What was the other word? Uh, Chevelle glass. Chevelle glass. Chevelle glass. What the heck's a Chevelle glass? I don't know. Okay, Chevelle glass. It's a tall mirror fitted at the middle to an upright frame so it can be tilted. You've seen these in many movies, I'm sure. Where it's a mirror that um, you can tilt it to be in different angles to see yourself. But I never knew it was called a Chevelle glass. So hopefully this sheds some light. And you know what? I'm probably going to record it. So when you listen to this, I'm going to be saying the word cupola, cupola correctly. Because that's probably what I'm going to do. Because it's going to just eat away at me. Cupola. Cupola. Word of the day, cupola. The attractive things on top of a ceiling that light, let light and air in. All right. I think that's all the definitions I have for you. Page 30. The doctor shuddered. They were crying it in the square, he said. I heard them in my dining room. One word, said the lawyer. Carew was my client, but so are you, and I want to know what I'm doing. You have not been mad enough to hide this fellow. Ardison, I swear to God, cried the doctor. I swear to God I will never set eyes on him again. I bind my honor to you, that I am done with him in this world. It is all at an end, and indeed he does not want my help. You do not know him as I do. He is safe. He is quite safe. Mark my words. He will never more be heard of. The lawyer listened gloomily. He did not like his friend's feverish manner. You seem pretty sure of him, said he, and for your sake, I hope you may be right. If it came to trial, your name might appear. I am quite sure of him, replied Jekyll. I have grounds for certainty that I cannot share with anyone, but there's one thing on which you may advise me. I have, I have received a letter, and I'm at loss whether I should show it to the police. I should like to leave it in your hands, Ottison. You would judge wisely, I'm sure. I have so great a trust in you. You fear, suppose, that it might lead to his detection? Asked the lawyer. No, said the other. 
I cannot say that I care what becomes of Hyde. I'm quite done with him. I was thinking of my own character, which this hateful business has rather exposed. Utterson ruminated a while. He was surprised at his friend's selfishness, and yet relieved by it. Well, said he, at last, let me see the letter. The letter was written in an odd, upright hand, inside Edward Hyde, and it signified briefly enough that the writer's benefactor, Dr. Jekyll, whom he had so unworthily repaid for thousand, a thousand generosities, need labor under no alarm for his safety, as he had means of escape on which he placed a sure dependence. Dr. Jekyll doesn't want to have anything to do with Mr. Hyde. He says he doesn't want to have anything to do with him. But I'm assuming, because the story is only at page 30, that <laughs> Mr. Mr. Hyde will show up sooner or later. I wonder what he'll do. What will he do next? Well, he already murdered one person. He trampled a girl, killed a man. And what's next? Hmm? I don't know. I've never read the book. <laughs> you probably know because you probably know the story. Who knows? Anyway, it's really, really fun. I have to say this. It's super fun to read the original. You can see every movie, every rendition there is out there. But to actually read the original by Robert Louis Stevenson, it's quite a treat. And I find the old writings, you have to read the page maybe a couple times to gather the meaning. Because... Uh, the point is usually conveyed in a very lengthy, wordy way. But if you just reread it a couple times or listen to it a couple times, it's quite fanciful. It's quite, I don't know, it's just a unique way to write, I guess. So until next time, I bid you a happy Halloween. Be safe. Don't drink and drive, obviously. Party at home. Uh, be good to your family. Be good to yourself. And uh, I will catch you later on the next reading.